Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm about to ask you a really stupid question, but here we go. How does the offer of free beer sound? Sounds like the greatest offer on earth. And as a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that free beer. Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you can taste eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to the website beer52.com forward slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com forward slash party and cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that... Political party listeners get an extra two free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. That is a crate of beer. Beer 52 travels the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer. And each month, they send you a different theme. Themes have included Germany. I mean, that one would have been amazing. Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and even more but they haven't forgotten their roots. They're a UK company and they're passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in. You can leave at any time and your first box is sent to you next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case includes award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which takes you through the different themes of the UK craft beer scene, and you get a snack thrown in just to top it all off. And you can pick the sort of beers you want. If you don't like dark beers, you can pick the light beers. Just go to beer52.com forward slash party to get your first crate of eight beers free. And don't forget political party customers, because you're very special people. Get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's beer52.com forward slash party. I mean, that would be a great night in, wouldn't it? Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope you're well, that you're following official government advice, if you can understand it, and that you're washing your hands regularly, staying in your home, and only leaving once a day to exercise. Um, and I just hope you and your loved ones are well. Um, this episode features Emily Thornbury, who's been on the show a couple of times before. It's always great fun. And I spoke to her as the Labour leadership contest comes to an end, which can be, of course, completely overshadowed by everything. There is... And uh, uh, no direct spoilers, but I think you'll be amazed by a couple of things that Emily reveals early in this interview about things she could and couldn't get her hands on, including something which, at the point of broadcast, as far as we're aware, she still doesn't have, which is just remarkable. And if it applies to Emily, imagine who else this applies to. I won't give anything else away. Um, I'll just crack on. Please enjoy Emily Thornbury. Delighted to be joined by Emily Thornbury. Emily, we're almost at the end now of the Labour leadership contest. Yes. It's been a very long road. What are your reflections on, on the contest? Well, yeah, it's been long. 
<laughs> um, it's been long. It's weird, isn't it, that the ballot papers went out such a long time ago and then the leadership contest kind of stretches on afterwards. I was talking, though, to somebody from the NEC and she said the difficulty was was that there are so many ballot papers to get out that they had to send them out in batches. And so that's why so they couldn't send them all out on the same day, which obviously would have been the best thing, because we all know, don't we, as Labour activists, that when you're dealing with postal voters, you've got to get out on postal vote weekend as soon as people get the postal votes and you've got to talk to them and because that's when most people are going to vote. And then the other time is immediately before the ballot closes. But to have this long period in between, when of course now they can't even go around and do hustings. It's, uh, of course. it's very odd. It's very odd. And I think a lot of the teams are now changing their their uh, their teams for who are doing telephone canvassing into not doing telephone canvassing anymore but to you know, ringing around and talking about coronavirus and finding people who are isolated and helping them and so on so it's as if the it's as if the leadership election is over but we don't know what the result is yet and it's just going to be announced on the 4th of april behind closed doors i think so or maybe just online i mean who knows i, I really don't know I really don't know. I haven't been told. I mean, when you say they're sending it out in batches, you know, students of criminalinology will say, oh, yeah, I bet certain ones were sent out first. I mean, you don't think there's any of that going on, do you? I have no idea. <laughs> I, the alarm bells rang in my former staffer's head when you said that. I was like, oh, all right, OK. I haven't had mine yet. What? No, I haven't had my ballot paper yet. But I'm told it's coming today. But so. you've only got a few days left. I know. That's incredible. I know. <laughs> But how have you not, surely MPs, just in terms of, you know, if you wanted to make sure that you had prominent people who on social media could say, well, I've definitely had mine, surely you get the ballot papers to the MPs first. Who knows? I mean, do you think you'll definitely get a ballot paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm told I definitely will. I was um, emailed this this weekend and, uh, the, you know, I've, I've contacted the party and they're very embarrassed and uh, there's been some sort of mess up somewhere, but, but- uh, I'm getting a ballot paper. I mean, surely you could just do it online. So sending out a bulk email isn't the same as sending out a bulk physical I don't know. I'm told paper. that there's 800,000 ballot papers gone out because they're all the affiliates as, well as, okay, as yeah. well as the membership. So it's a really big job. I mean, what if we get to April the 4th? I mean, surely, I'm sure if it gets to April the 3rd, you'll be banging on the door, <laughs> forcing them to print one off. But how late can you leave it? Exactly. I find I wonder if there are any other members of Parliament that haven't, or, or are the prominent voices. I don't know. I don't know. And um, there's somebody else in my office who hasn't got her ballot paper yet, so I'm not taking it personally. But I mean, the one thing they have those two people have in common is they worked on a rival leadership. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's got nothing to do with that. <laughs> I mean, you don't think it has to? I mean, in all no, seriousness, no, no. we're sort of joking. No, of course not. Um, so. Um, you didn't make it through to the later stages, which was a, a huge shame for yeah. for you, for the party, for the country. You were by far the most entertaining candidate. <laughs> well, thank you. I suppose that's a compliment. <laughs> oh, it is absolutely. But you need you need candidates who bring contests to life. Yeah. <laughs> and you were kind of the only one who did that. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I know. It's a shame. I mean, I didn't have any data. You know, so um, so I relied on the telephone numbers of friends and then their their friends' friends. Um, so I would get in touch with people who'd say, I've heard from everybody else. Why haven't we heard from you? And I go, because I haven't got any data. But why didn't you have any data? Well, I think you get you, you would get the Labour Party data once you got on the ballot. But you couldn't get on the ballot without the data. without the data. So obviously, Momentum has a huge amount of data. Yes. Um, and indeed, um, 
as far as I could see, everybody in my constituency party was contacted by Momentum asking them to vote for Rebecca Long-Bailey at the uh, nominating meeting, which irked a little because I wasn't allowed to contact them because I would rely on Labour Party data. So, so in your own constituency... There's Labour was, Party data, you see. It was harder for you to contact your own members who've selected you year after year, who you campaign with shoulder to shoulder than it was for someone outside of the constituency and an organisation that's only existed for a handful of years. And with whom I've worked a lot. Yeah. Um, I've done training with them, I've done campaigning with them and, and so on. So yes, I have to say, of all, the, uh, of all the different circumstances in the Labour Party leadership, that one makes me really cross. But, you know, hey, I mean, it, it was fine. And I absolutely walked it and, you know, lots of people turned up and I think that Rebecca got sort of 10 or 12 votes and I got... 100 you know it was fine and did you talk to momentum at all did you say look i get do this elsewhere but i know you at least stay out of islington i'm going to speak to john landsman when i'm less cross (laughs) (laughs) but he i mean who knows what i mean we kind of know what's going to happen but given that we always think we know what's going to happen and then those things don't happen i mean he potentially could be working in the leader's office the new leader's office Mm. I, mean, I don't have any problems with any... I mean, I, I, there are a couple of people, obviously one always has a couple of people who you don't get on with, obviously. But I have not had problems with um, with any of them. I mean, you know, um, Len McCluskey and I get on perfectly well. I went to the launch of his book, um, but he wouldn't support me, which was a great disappointment because I had been a member of Unite since 1984. Um, so that was a shame. So yeah. how hard is that then when you have these long-standing relationships mm. with people and you believe that you're building these relationships and when the time for a leadership bid, when you want to cash in those chips when you come to a leadership bid and those people aren't prepared to do that for you? Well, I think, I think the leadership bid, I think the leadership became about all kinds of other things. So I think it became part of where do you stand on Brexit? Which part of the country do you come from? Who are you representing? You know, all of those sorts of things. And I think we got sort of two quite big monolithic campaigns. And and I was trying to be a candidate that would kind of unite people. But I sort of felt like the Labour Party wasn't that keen on necessarily doing that. And that what they really wanted to do was have kind of a classic old Labour Party fight. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, the Labour Party is the Labour Party. That is how we are. Um and so I would get lots of people, you know, saying, oh, I really like you, Emily. I think you're a great candidate. I think you'll be the best leader, but we've got to stop Rebecca Long-Bailey. Therefore, I've got to nominate Keir or, you know, vice versa. And so what do you do? You get you get squeezed in the middle. Was that, I mean, at the start of the contest, was that your plan to kind of be the unity candidate? Did you yeah. at any point think, well, maybe I need to tack left or tack right? I mean, how how did you come to the decision to be the unity candidate? Well, I think I am. Um, a candidate that's unifying um, you know I've uh, because I essentially am loyal to the Labour Party over and above everything else um, so I you know I remained with Jeremy during the rebellion most practically all of my friends resigned but I didn't agree with them I thought that the that the leader had been chosen by the membership and the membership owns the party and it's my duty to make the leader the best leader he can be and that was my view. And I had this argument plenty of times with my mates, you know, good long-standing friends who we just yes. didn't see eye to eye with. So, you know, I've always remained loyal to whoever the leader is. Um, and um, and that's what I will continue to do. You know, whoever is whoever is selected at the end of this process, and it'll be up to the membership to decide who they, who they want to have. Uh, at the moment, 
if the bookies are right, if the pundits are right, and we know they can often be wrong, it looks like Keir Starmer will be leader of the Labour Party. As a woman, to see the Labour Party elect another male leader, having existed for 120 years, even if Keir Starmer is perhaps closer to you politically than Rebecca Long-Bailey is, and I mean, that's for you to say, not me, will there be a part of you that is sad that it's another man? Well, obviously, I'm sad that they didn't select the best candidate who happened to be a woman. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, you know, it's, as I say, in the end, it's up to the, mem- to the membership. Listen, we have gone through an absolute revolution in the Labour Party in the last 20 years. Um, and that, I think, a really important motor in that was all women shortlists. Yeah. Because constituency parties up and down the country had the row. You know, the row being, why have we only ever had all male shortlists? What benefit does a woman bring? Why don't we, how, why are we not selecting women? How do we value women? How do we measure them against men? What are our preconceived ideas about what an MP looks like? All of those kinds of arguments happened up and down the country and really challenged Labour Party members. And the result of it, I think, is that we have many more women who are active in senior positions in the Labour Party. I mean, with all my travelling, I've done, I've been to so many hundreds of constituencies and, you know, most of them are run by women. You know, and there are lots of, of women councillors, increasing numbers of women councillors, more women MPs than men in Parliament, you know, and, uh, and a shadow cabinet, which is 50-50. So I think we are feminised. Um, and the time will come when we will finally have a woman leader, I'm sure. Would you ever support an all-women shortlist for the leadership? Well, no, I think... I think that it was a, it's a matter for the membership to decide who it is that they want to have for leader. Um, I, I think it's unfortunate that we would have a, if we were to have a, a majority of the Parliamentary Labour Party women and, a, say, a feminised Labour Party, if the leadership was, as it has been, all male. Um, but, you know, I don't want to kind of cast aspersions, but I just think you know, it's, um, it's not a very modern look. I suppose one who was more sympathetic to um you know the outcome or or to the just to the party in general would say well you ended up with 75% of the candidates for the leadership being female which in itself i suppose is a sign of progress or isn't it maybe 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 not i mean i think in the end what matters is what the result is yeah. and have you decided who you're going to vote for I'm not saying because um, whoever becomes leader of the Labour Party, I will, I will serve. But are you clear in your mo- own mind who you're going to support? Yeah. And has that, has, <laughs> has that changed over the contest? Listen, I'm not saying, so no, there's no, no but, point you fishing. <laughs> no, well, I've got to occasionally try and fish. But if, without naming names, is it the same person that you, you know, would you vote that way regardless of the contest, do you think? Or? No, I would have voted for myself at the beginning of the contest, and uh, now I can't. But, um, but otherwise, as I say, whoever becomes leader of the Labour Party, I will, I will serve whoever it is, and I will make them the best leader they can be. You've seen fairly as the, the most formidable commons performer, uh, particularly with a track record of holding Boris Johnson to account. Um, do you think being good in the commons translates at all? Well, I don't think you can just be good in the commons, um, but I think that it's a good indicator. I think that the problem is with this 
Prime Minister is that he doesn't want to be accountable to anybody. He, we didn't see him accountable to anybody during the general election. He would hide in a fridge rather than talk to the media. And he will avoid the Commons as much as he possibly can. But the one thing he can't avoid is the weekly Prime Minister's questions. So I think doing Prime Minister's questions well each week is really important because it will be one of the few times that you get a chance to hold him to account. Of course, things are now different with, with coronavirus and him doing his his daily uh, Boris show. Um, but but before that, you know, the concern was was that this was going to be the only time that we would hold him to account, and so we had needed to do it well. And you have to do it, I think. Um, my advice to whoever becomes leader is to do it in such a way whereby you're absolutely on top of all the detail, um, but that you give a confident performance that you are light on your feet and that you're prepared to whack back a joke um, because, you know, he will try and denigrate the process and denigrate you by making jokes at you. But if he knows that you can give as good as you get, I'm not saying that you beat a clown by being a clown. I think you have to be somebody of substance and authority, but you need also to be able to have a sense of humour and have a go back. You brought some of that to the leadership contest, the great moment where, I think it was in the Newsnight debate, where they come to you and you say... Oh, I'm so sorry, I'd zoned out. And <laughs> <laughs> no, that was Victoria Derbyshire. Oh, I mean, it was right, a yes. nightmare because they had an audience and then she would go <laughs> to the audience and they would ask like completely different questions and and they had a little tiny table where you're supposed to put your notes, but it was such a long way down, you couldn't actually read them. So you'd be like trying to write people's names down and leave it on the table and then you couldn't pick it up. And then you had no idea who she was going to go to next or who was going to answer the questions next. And then she would... N- you know, knock in her own question as well. So I was just standing thinking, I just can't, I can't get a handle on this. I just can't. So I found myself just zoning out, just thinking, whoa, God, this is a nightmare. Can I walk away? <laughs> so I think I was in the middle of that thought when she said, so, Emily Thornbury. I went, oh, oh Lord. What, what, what was the question? What were the many questions? I don't even know now. <laughs> but some politicians would have been having those thoughts. But perhaps wouldn't have given voice to them. Would have, would have fudged something and said, look, I think it's a really serious issue and we'll do all we can or found a vague form of words. Are you just really honest about it? Well, it was uh, it was a slightly um, wild uh, programme, that one. <laughs> so where, where, as we come to the end of this leadership contest then, does this, you know, how do you feel about perhaps standing again in the future? Or do you think you've, you've tried once and that's that? Oh, look, I mean, we need to have a period of stability. You know, we need to get the new leader in and and uh, they need to win the next election and they need to be the next prime minister. So, you know, um, this is uh, hopefully whoever gets elected is going to be the leader for a long time. And uh, I mean, at the time of recording, Jeremy Corbyn is still leader of the Labour Party, he was uh, PMQ to the week, he was on Sophie Ridge on Sunday. Just feels sort of, I don't understand why he's still there. He's leader until there's a new one and the process is as long as the process is. But... I think given, perhaps it's because of coronavirus, it feels like the world has really changed, even in the last fortnight, let alone since the election. Yeah. It feels weird still seeing him there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you feel when you see him on telly as the leader of the Labour Party still? Well, I think what he learned was that it was wrong for Ed to stand down as fast as he did and leave us with a vacuum. And that was really difficult. And I think he decided that that was the wrong thing to do and that he would carry on being leader until the until the election had finished. And I, what I actually think is, how must he be feeling? 
Mm. How must he be feeling going, standing up every week, doing prime minister's questions, you know, going on the media, holding, um, you know, shadow cabinet meetings, knowing that, you know, very, very much the action is happening elsewhere. It must be really difficult and humiliating for him. But I think that he's a man of principle and he's doing what he thinks is best for the Labour Party. And I admire that. It shows a huge strength. And one thing you cannot ever criticise Jeremy for is that he doesn't have enormous strength of character. How do you think history will judge the Corbyn era of the Labour Party? I think they'll see it as in an arc. I think it was that we had we had we had lost a number of elections and I think the membership were prepared for the Labour Party to triangulate. You know, we want to go here but we can't quite go there, so we'll go slightly somewhere slightly different, but at least it's in the right direction. And they were prepared to put up with that sort of triangulation um over a period of years. But when we lost yet another election, they I think they felt, why don't we just start speaking from the heart? Why don't we just remember who we are, who the core what the core of us is? We need to adjust ourselves as a Labour Party, find our refind our radical roots, be less embarrassed about who we are and what we stand for, and just go for it. And I think that was a really important stage in the development of the Labour Party. And I think that we have shifted to the left as a party, and that's right. And whoever becomes leader of the Labour Party will certainly have a much more left-wing um, uh, critique, I think, than previous leaders have, have had, and and a, and a programme that will be much more left-wing than, than we were in 2010. Do you think Keir Starmer will have to be quite left-wing perhaps more left-wing than he'd want to be if he becomes leader? I don't know if it's more left-wing than he wants to be, but I think that he's certainly... Um, I think that, that what his programme is going to be it will be more left-wing than, than where we ended up quite often with Ed, who I think admits himself that he compromised too often and should have gone with his instincts more than he did. And do you feel comfortable with the Labour Party being pulled to the left? Yeah, of course. I'm on the left of the party. I've always been on the left of the party. But you know, after the party's fourth defeat in a row. Yeah, but I think, OK, what I think is, I think that the that what the Labour Party stands for is actually what's best in Britain. I'm, a, I'm sorry to be pompous, but I do think it's right. I think that we as a country want to be a country whereby we look after one another, where we have a safety net, where there are great, aren't great big holes in it where we don't have people falling through it, where we don't have people sleeping on the street, where people don't need to beg. I think that as one of the richest countries in the world, we should have a national health service that's fit for purpose. And we shouldn't have teachers writing to parents asking for money for pencils. And I think the Labour Party stands for decent public services, for a decent level of taxation to pay for those public services, but also as a party of opportunity. And and a party that's proud of our country and prepared to defend our country, um, and always stand up for us, but that we're internationalists, that we, we abide by the rule of law, that, you know, all of those sorts of things are core Labour values. Um, giving people a chance, making a more equal society, making a fairer country. And we should just be saying that with a bit more confidence, because, of course, we get beaten up. Of course, the right-wing media have a go at us all the time. But I think we just need to look them in the eye and just say, this is right. This is the way we are. This is what our country is about. And we need, we have had 10 years of drift to the right as a country. We need to get back to where our country really is. But you must want Labour to win. Of course. But I think that if we say that, and we say those sorts of things with confidence and clarity, you know, and with unity, absolutely we win the next election. 
I mean, listen, the last time they stood on a platform, right? They stood on a platform at the general election of saying they were going to get Brexit done. That's all they promised. Single issue election. We were fools to agree to a general election. We should not have agreed to it. I've made that perfectly clear that that's what my view was at the time. I haven't changed my mind. We should have had a referendum on a single issue and then we should have had a general election. But we are where we are. But they promised to get Brexit done. They're not going to be able to get Brexit done, not in the way that people will expect them to have done. And so if they fail at that, then the only historical precedent was the one at the beginning of the 19th century when the Tories were had an election, the khaki election on the Boer War, and they said they were going to get the Boer War done. And, and they failed. And at the next election, the Liberals got a majority of 147. You know, if you go in on one promise and you fail on that promise, you know, things can swing very rapidly. We can win the next election. And, of course, events. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson has become, I think Heather Stewart put this, <laughs> Boris Johnson has behaved in a way which is completely contrary to his instincts in relation to coronavirus. He's had to tell the British public that they're not allowed to go to the pub. You know, he has a an instinct which is, you know, which is libertarian. Um, but he's having to completely flip all of his you know, core values and behave in a totally different way. So where are we going politically? You know, but if we need to be firm and steadfast and true and clear and we're going to be all right and we can win the next election. Other people might look at the direction of the Labour Party since 2010 and the results that that has led to and say, well, if Labour really wants to win next time, it should move towards the centre. And uh, In what way? I mean, in what way? Because people talk bandy these terms around. You know, we should be more moderate. Well, what does moderate mean? I mean, people always say to me, well, no, people don't always say that. My best story is, uh, is a judge friend of my husband's who said to my husband, you know, your wife is awfully reasonable for a Corbynista. <laughs> <laughs> does it mean that I'm a moderate? Am I a moderate Corbynista? No, I just come from the heart of the Labour Party. Yay. Yes, but since 1974, Labour's only ever won when it has been in a particular mindset. And it's not just about personal behaviour and the way you sound and, and present yourself. It's also about the country knowing that you are acting in the total national interest and not pursuing things that feel like obscure left-wing hobby horses. And having friendships with certain groups abroad that perhaps suggest that you don't like the country very much. It's about appearing patriotic. Well, of course. I mean, I, I, when I was saying to you about the things that the Labour Party stands for, I think that, you know, we are patriotic. And and that's, you know, because, as I say, I think that we reflect the, va the values of our country. We come from our country. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know where you're going with this. You know, I think I think that, I think you uh, do. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think that the you know the party is the party, and you know we can win the next election by being who we are. I mean, even if it was just a science experiment, the Labour Party has drifted incrementally left and keeps losing. No, don't no, you, you think? Just well, why don't you just more, try? Tell me more. So, so okay. So, certain individuals have had historic relationships with particular groups that have said things on platforms, not necessarily when that person has been there, but when they might not have been there, or maybe even when they were there, but it was twenty years ago. You know. So, so yes, you know, the, the media can make a great deal of that, but I don't know where you're going. Okay, well, let's talk about policy then. At the last okay. election, yeah. Labour was pledged to nationalise rail, mail, water, electricity, broadband. 
that to the public looked like huge state intervention in their lives. Now, mm. in coronavirus, perhaps some of those things may well end up... Well, there up will be a lot of things left. ...being achieved. Right, um, yeah. But obviously the context is different. But that felt like old-fashioned 1970s labour. Mm. There's not a great appetite to nationalise the railways. There was no there appetite was for free... Appetite. There was a great appetite to it. It was incredibly popular if you, to re-nationalise you, if, Well, if, if you just ask people the question, do you want to nationalise the railway... On some polls, people say yes. Once you explain to them what nationalising the railway means, opinion changes. Well, so there was a kind of top line that was used to justify huge state intervention. There isn't a great campaign to nationalise the railways. Commuters aren't talking about this stuff. Well, ask them when the fares go up. You know, ask oh, them well, of the course. Of but, what, but the answer to the question say, is cheaper rail, not nationalised rail. Yes, but we're not going to get cheaper rail when we get individual company, rail companies taking the mickey the way that they have been. So when you see the way the government are handling this crisis mm. and you see a Conservative Chancellor guaranteeing 80% of wages mm. up to 30, 35 grand a year, does, it, does a part of you think we won the argument? I think, I think they are. I mean, they, a lot of what they're doing is the right thing, but they're, they are taking a long time to get to it. And what's interesting is where their priorities are. So, for example, their first priority was to save companies, but not to save the employees. So, yes, they did the right thing in terms of companies, but then it took them quite a long time, really, to then say they were going to guarantee the wages of uh, of employees. They still haven't got their heads around how they're going to help people who are self-employed and people who, frankly, are on zero hours. You know, all the people who get rung up on a Friday and told what hours they're going to be working the next week, how are they going to survive? And, of course, it does make a challenge to them when it comes to universal credit, because universal credit, they know they introduced a terrible system where you have to wait five weeks. I mean, I was on um, Any Questions and challenging the Tory on this, and he was going, oh, but you can always get, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the word they use? Al- um, forward allowances or some kind of jargon. Anyway, it basically means you can borrow against your future benefits, but, yeah. you know, you can't get, you, do, you don't get benefits you don't get for five weeks. Dated. So, you know, so, so that needs to be sorted out. Um, they their instinct is to save house house owners and to say you can have a holiday from paying your mortgage, but their instinct is not to help renters. You know that comes later. So yes, they may be getting to the right place, but it is interesting what they do first and then what they eventually do later as a result of agitation. Just on the retention payments, which is for staff that don't have to work during this period or can't work. Um, obviously, they won't pay the wages of people that are working. And when Rishi Sunak announced that, what was your initial reaction? My initial reaction was, does that mean that if you're ill and you can't work, you go on to you go on to, to benefits for people who are sick, which is like, is it £94 a week or something? You know, that the health secretary himself has said he couldn't he couldn't possibly live on. So if you're sick, then you're getting less money. But if you don't work... I don't understand it. If you're self-isolating, do you get your 80% wages? Or if you're sick and self-isolating, you get 94? I mean, none of these questions have really been answered. But when he makes that announcement, do you go, oh my God, that's actually quite impressive? Or do you immediately think, well, hang on, he's not helping these people? My my instinct is to think about where the holes are, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, don't believe a Tory bearing gifts. Um, find out what's re- what's really what's really there because there is so much spin comes out from number ten. They'll do things which look good, but it doesn't take a great deal of scratching to realise that it's like it's gold plate. It's not gold. But let's say that was all they did, and they announced no further measures. 
to guarantee the wages of 80% of workers. No, not 80% of workers. So, no, the, the, the wages, wages up to 80%. Um, in itself feels, I mean, would a Labour government have done that? Yeah, well, we were saying that they should do 90% of the lowest paid and then going down to 80% for the highest earners. So actually, to be fair, the Tory is saying that they guarantee 80% of wages up to 2500 a month um, was more radical than us because they, were, they weren't going to pay as much for the highest earners. So that was interesting. I, I thought, oh, good for you on that one. <laughs> but they still have. But, you know, the way our economy is, we have a flexible economy. People work flexibly. And there's a definite downside to that. What do we do about the self-employed? What do we do about those on zero hours? And they do need to come to for some answers on that. And they need to be working faster than they do. I mean, I, I think maybe, you know, we will also look back on this and think, should he really have had the budget? You know, coronavirus was kind of building up. You could see it coming. Um, they must have had advice. So why do the, you know, why do that budget? Um, why spend you know such large amounts of money? I mean, I'm not saying that potholes aren't important, but that money that we've now committed to paying for potholes, maybe looking back on it now, we think actually we need to be using a lot of that money for other things. What's your assessment of Rishi Sunak as a performer? He seems to be the new star of British politics. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, fine. As I say, the 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 point about it is is that he. At least you can understand what he says. I mean, which is which is different to Boris, you know, because Boris goes on. You really don't know at the end of it what it is that he's been saying. Um, the difficulty for Sunak is that he'll make an announcement, but it, it isn't a complete announcement. And he has to kind of keep coming back and patching it up and saying, OK, well, I said this, but yes, I did overlook this. Or yes, we're going to do this, but and we'll work out the details later. And so he has to kind of keep coming back. So that's confusing and it's confusing for the public who are incredibly concerned. How hard is it to be a responsible opposition at a time like this? Um, yeah, it is difficult, um, because any criticism that you make at all, um, people say, oh, what are you doing criticising? You know, the government's doing the best it can. But the government doesn't have all the answers. And actually, it's pretty arrogant to the government to think that it does. You know, best decisions are made collectively. And we have a number of... of ideas and issues and we can bring things to the table from my brief for example um six days ago the foreign secretary made a, an announcement saying that people shouldn't leave the country um except for exceptional reasons whatever it was um but otherwise people shouldn't leave but i use that as an opportunity to say well yes exceptional travel but exceptional travel must include all the people who are now stuck abroad and what are you doing to help them and at that point, he was saying, well, they'll have to get in touch with their airlines and their travel people and, you know, and so on. And I raised the fact that the embassy in Peru uh, was closed down because Peru was closed down. But what about all these poor people who were stuck and couldn't get back? And, yes. you know, the Peruvian embassy wasn't helping. And we've made a big fuss and a lot of people stuck in Peru have now been in touch with us. And we've been feeding all that into the foreign office. And the foreign office now says that they're putting on flights. I'm pleased. But that's... Probably because of the fuss that we made. Unfortunately, there's a large number of other countries in the world. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm agitating for a meeting with the Foreign Office. I've got a huge, great file of people who've been in touch with me or been in touch with Labour MPs. And to sit down with them and say, what are we doing with this person? Are we doing anything in this country? What publicity have you put out about, you know, what's the, you know, how are you communicating with people here? All of that 
is the important bit of holding people to account and making sure that they do it the right way. Because sometimes I think the Foreign Office is, I mean, it comes from a history of kind of grand, you know, global politics, but the individual cases are also really important. And when you're sitting in a country and you can see, I don't know, the Germans and the Israelis, you know, chartering flights coming in and picking up their citizens and the Brits don't. And I think the Foreign Office has not been given any additional assistance at a time of this great crisis whilst we're we're focusing on the domestic agenda. There are people you know, stuck who are running out of medicine, who are not allowed out of their hotel room. And what do they do? There are citizens. Is anybody in touch with them? Is anybody helping them? How are they going to get home? You know, these questions do need to be answered. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, as of less than a fortnight's time, the Shadow Foreign Secretary brief may, may, not, may not be in your hands. It may be someone else. I mean, do you think, have you been given any assurances from the one or two people likely to lead the party that you would be kept on as Shadow Foreign Secretary? I've, um, I've not had uh, conversations with anybody about that. Um, I mean, I'd like to be Foreign, I'd like to be foreign Secretary. Um, and second best, I'd like to be Shadow Foreign Secretary. Um, I'm one of the longest serving um, Shadow or Foreign Secretaries uh, for the Labour Party ever. And, uh, and I have a large number of connections and expertise that I've built up over the years. And obviously, I'd really like to continue to do it. But it'll be up to whoever the leader is to decide who they're going to give that post to. And have any of them given assurances? I haven't. Um, I haven't asked for them. I mean, you, you say you'd like to be foreign secretary. Is it inconceivable that as this crisis deepens, a government of national unity is formed, and that you could actually serve as foreign secretary in it? Uh, I doubt it. I, I, it's difficult to imagine, really. Um, the Tories have a majority of eighty. They have an arrogance about them. I don't think they're going to be asking for any help. <laughs> Should the call come? I mean, we, you know, <laughs> let's hope things don't get really dire. But if they do, as a show of national, you know, solidarity amongst the political establishment. It will, it will be up to whoever the leader of the Labour Party is, um, what decision is made about that. Not for me. Well, I mean, let's, I mean, in terms, just in terms of, this crisis and the way it's unfolding, you see pictures of people still going to markets and congregating in crowded areas. I mean, do you, as a politician, what's your reaction to that? I think that fundamentally people want to do the right thing. 
I think that a time like this, they want to do the right thing. They're just not quite sure what the right thing is. And I think that when there isn't a sufficiently clear lead on what people are supposed to do and what people are not supposed to do, then they get a bit, you know, I mean, last week in London, there was this rumour going around. I think it might have come from sources at number 10, you know, that, that London was going to be closed down. And it, whether it came from number 10 or not, number 10 didn't squash it. And so people got into a panic and they thought, well, if we're going to have to, you know, how fast will London get closed down and what am I to do? And I want to do the right thing. I've got to get out and stock up and, you know, make sure that we have enough food in our house to last a month or two months because who knows how long we're going to be locked down for. So I understand that. But I think that given that the public do want to do the right thing, I think a clear and coherent leadership as to this is the plan and this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it would mean that people would would know. And people then there could be know, they? no, no. I think when you talk about, you know, markets are full, well people are out buying cheap food in order to be able to stock up so that in case, you know, in case they get ill, in case somebody in their family gets ill, in case there aren't lemons tomorrow, you know, they're in a panic. If they can be guaranteed that there will be food, if they can be it can be clear as to when it is that we want people to go out and when we don't want people to go out, when they can use the tube, when they can't use the tube, you know, these sorts of things, just making it clear, I think, rather than nudging them, making it clear, this is what we expect, this is what we don't expect, this is why, you know, we're, I mean, it was only a week or so ago that there was the, the government seemed to be pursuing this policy of herd immunity. You know, so let the pub, let the public get infected. Let it. Hopefully, it'll happen gently. But once the public have been sufficiently infected, then the virus will go away. And then I think they realise just how many people were likely to die. But that must have been clear from the outset. I don't know. But individuals still have to take responsibility for their own behaviour, don't they? I mean, people still going to pubs last week when it was obvious. You weren't meant to. Some people are just reckless. I mean, what well, what, what does obvious? Labour philosophy say well, about the well, individual? Well, was it obvious that that you weren't meant to? Oh, I think so. Well, well, you. Well, I didn't go. I well, thought it was obvious. Well, yeah, but if you worked in a pub, you had to go. <laughs> yes, but I'm talking about the customers. No, but no, but you know, if you weren't supposed to go to pubs, then why didn't the government close the pubs down? Well, th- th- that's a very good point. But uh, but as an individual, I received messages. the information. I saw the press comments. I thought, well, I don't. I'm not going to the pub then because it's clearly dangerous. Yeah. So yeah. if I got the message, and other people will have seen the same thing and gone, it's just that some people go, oh, I think I'll be all right. People take their chances a bit. Mm, I know. Do you think Labour would have been in, in office, would have closed those pubs? Yes, I think we would have. I think that we, I think that we would have been less embarrassed about the importance of the government stepping in and being clear about, you know, this is the plan, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. That's it. You know, I think state intervention is not something that we have a, you know, I mean, you can see them. You can see these Tories wrestling with themselves. Oh, can we, do we really have to do this? Are you sure that we have to do oh, No, it's so, you know, because it's so contrary to their instincts. But they're having to, of course they're having to. But we wouldn't have had any of that moment of self-doubt. You know, we would have just gone, right, this is the plan. This is what we do. This is how we do it. Let's go. You think Jeremy Corbyn would have been a better communicator throughout this crisis than, than Boris Johnson? I think he would have been more empathetic. But a better communicator? Well, yes. Um, I think he would have. And I think it's... Uh, and it's also, as as always with the Labour Party, 
um, the leadership has done as a team. So just returning to the Labour leadership then, I remember Liz Kendall telling me, uh, it was around the time after the last contest, that her and Jeremy became friends during the leadership contest. What is the atmosphere like when you're doing all these events together, but basically having to fight each other very politely? Do friendships form as your relationship change with Keir, Lisa and, and Rebecca? Well, not that much, because I, I knew them anyway, really. Um, so, yeah, no, so I didn't, uh, they they did seem to be terribly scripted, the other three. They did seem to say the same thing again and again. I have to say, I didn't really have it. I mean, it, it's probably just more to do with not being very organised, you know, that I didn't really have a script. I used to just, just get up and say what I thought. We did try and do some scripts because, you know, because we were asked questions. We'd be asked a question and then you'd have to give a 40-second answer, you know, on what would your economic policy be or something? I mean, how the hell do you say that in yeah. 40 seconds? So I had a go at writing out scripts in relation to 40 second answers. And after a while, I just gave up. I just thought, well, I'll just have a go. And I think I probably usually went over 40 seconds anyway and didn't get stopped. Um, but, you know, it was it was, it was was wild, really. Um, and then, of course, you know, during the time when I was in the contest, um, uh, quite a lot of the hustings got stopped because of of Keir's mother-in-law. Mm. So um, there weren't as many as uh, as I'd I'd hoped there would be. Those rules around forty-second replies just seem ludicrous. Totally counter to having a proper political discussion yeah, and debate. I agree with you. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. And and of course, it also lends itself to those who will learn a forty-second script. Yes, which is fine for certain things for sound bites that can be clipped and put online, but in terms of a quality debate, exactly. an audience would surely want more. Exactly. I would have thought so. Well, I would have thought so. Are there any other things about the way the contest was run that you would change? Well, I think giving people data at an earlier stage would have been something I would, personally would have appreciated. Yeah, because I just had, as I say, phone numbers of friends and friends of friends. And the, I also got the email addresses of constituency secretaries. So I would email a constituency secretary, say, I'm going to be in this constituency on this date in this pub. Could you send around an email asking people if they'd like to come? And, you know, 30 or 40 people would turn up, which was great. Um, and then, but then they'd have a nominating meeting and 100 people would turn up to that. Yeah. And obviously the other ones I haven't had a chance to speak to, let alone even communicate with. Of course. So that was hard. You know, that was hard. Um, so, yes, I think we should, have, we should have done something about that. I think the contest probably should have been shorter. Um, and yes, I think the hustings, well, I mean, I think that there should have been hustings in, uh, in the southeast and in the southwest. I think they were left out, you know, in the eastern region. East Midlands as well, yeah, I think. exactly, you know. So, you know, we did lots in, 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 in the northeast and, um, and the northwest. But, uh, but, you know, I think it could have jumped around more than it did. And I think there's only one in Scotland. And why, why were the hustings arranged like that? It was the people who were in charge of the Labour Party at the moment decided that that was the way that the hustings should be. For any reason, do you think? I think that um, the, I think having a more free-flowing um, debate probably would have benefited those who were more experienced. Like yourself. But so you think they didn't want that? Well, I'm just saying that. Um, whether they wanted it or not, I think that that was a, a structural issue, you know, in relation to the to the leadership. But, you know, it's never going to be perfect, is it? I mean, people are always going to have complaints. I mean, at the very least, you would want a debate in each region of the UK and in the nations. 
it just seems odd that you would d- deprive the members in those regions of mm. seeing the candidates. And having that debate, and having those debates before people were f- fell off the ticket. Of course. As well, yeah, I agree. I mean, you were... Or to have it, or to have it so that you know you don't start the hustings process until you know who's on the ticket. I think that was kind of so. You either you either do it at one end or you do it at the other. But you know, the um, so I didn't. So on the Friday, I on Friday the fourteenth, I didn't know if I was going to be going up to Scotland or not to do the hustings. So I bought myself a sleeper ticket in case I did get on. Yeah. And I think I missed by a couple of nominations, and um, so I didn't know one way or the other. And um, and in the end, and so I I bought that, and in the end I had I gave it to my couple of members of my staff who went up to Glasgow and had a weekend in Glasgow nice. instead. Um, anyway, I told my husband I hadn't got, and he said, "Oh, don't worry, darling, I bought my own tickets." He took me to Sardinia for a week. Oh, good on him! Brilliant. <laughs> so he obviously hadn't had a great deal of confidence that I was going to get on the ticket. So there were two lots of tickets: Sardinia or Glasgow. Anyway, so um, so my staff went up to Glasgow on the on the Saturday, and then. On the Sunday, it was actually in my constituency, the Hustings. Oh, man. Oh, no. Oh, no. But anyway, I was on a flight to Sardinia, so I was all right. But, uh, yeah, that was hard. Oh, that is... Mm. The process is cruel. Mm. Mm. But I suppose that's... Politics is brutal. Yeah, yeah, politics is brutal, and you've got to be a you know big, strong girl, and I am. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a nice time in Sardinia. A lovely time in Sardinia. The, it's the place to go if you don't want to see any Brits. There aren't any Brits in Sardinia. I don't know why, but they're wrong. Um, so when, uh, I mean, when you find out you're not then making it through, I mean, that's, losing elections is hard, losing leadership, you know, per, the personal rejection that politicians have to steal themselves for really is unlike any other profession. It's so public, it's so personal. I don't think it's that personal. I honestly don't think it's that personal. Um, I think it is. I think that we underestimate the importance of luck and timing in politics at our peril. Um and I don't think that it was personal. I think, as I say, it boiled down to, you know, the issues I was talking about earlier. Where did you come from? What was your position on Brexit? Who got who got ahead first? You know, who had the data? Who didn't have it? It's all kind of, kind of stuff. You know, it's but the data is crucial, isn't it? That is a really big deal yeah, because it's, a big deal. it's like a political party trying to campaign without the electoral register. I mean, mm. you're just blindly walking down streets in the dark. Mm. I mean, it was without the data, it was impossible for you to get on the ballot. Well, no, not necessarily impossible, but I nearly got on the ballot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but, but with the data, you probably definitely with the data, you almost it certainly would have been have, easier. <laughs> I mean, how, so how did you organise without data? Um, well, you know, I'd say well, that's how we did it. We 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 were given all of the we were given all the um, constituency secretaries. So we got in touch with those. We worked out. So and there were also I'd done I'd done hundreds of uh, of constituency visits over the years. So we also focused on where I'd been before and where I hadn't been before. So you know places that I had a connection with, uh, places where uh, there was an MP who was sympathetic. So we we kind of you know had a Venn diagram. Of these are the places that we're going to focus on. Um, and then sometimes people just got in touch and just asked us to come, just asked me to go, so I would go. So, you know, and just kind of went up and down the country. We also thought some of the constituencies are smaller. So um, so if I'm able to get in touch with 30 people in a smaller constituency, then I'm more likely to win that than I would be in Hornsey and Wood Green, you know, for example, yes. you know, where they've got a membership of 3,000. So that's the kind of thing that we did. Um, and then um, we tried to get in touch with people on Facebook. 
but you know, without any data, it's quite difficult. Well, it's just sort of. <laughs> how do you get in such a. Just type in labour into we Facebook. We were able to and... stir up quite a lot of kind of bottom feeders, you know, okay. all the kind of the haters who have to hate me, you know, yeah. for whom I symbolise everything that is, you know, wrong with the world, you know, bloody women, bloody overweight women, bloody mouthy women, bloody lefty women, you know, <laughs> them, all of them. We stirred up a lot of them. <laughs> do you, um. You, it, that doesn't seem to bother you too much. I mean, does that affect you on any level? Listen, you know, I've been in politics a long time now. It 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 it, it frustrates me that they that they are able in any way to influence the agenda. So you know, so so for example, if I do a a media appearance and I've done it well, I know I've done it well because the trolls haven't said anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I can say I can make one stumble and it'll be all over the place, you know, so you do feel. So, so you know, I mean, I've blocked an awful lot of them now on Twitter. Um, and, and the question is, you know, what do you do with this tiny minority of people who are trying to set the agenda, who make all the noise on Twitter, who are aggressive? What do we do about the right when they are not, it's not beyond them to make things up? And to certainly to twist things in a terrible way and to try and send a lie around the world and keep pushing at that lie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, so the, you know, you know, the, the good old one about, you know, how I'm a snob and how I look down on people. Anybody who meets me kind of go, well, how is this, how is this put about you, about you, Emily? And I go, well, it's just a lie that they've just, they've absolutely relentlessly kept pushing. And the bottom feeders do continue to do it with a certain amount of assistance from particular newspapers. How do we cut through on that? I mean, the left needs to have an answer on that. You know, there has been a capture of social media by the right when it comes to pushing certain messages. And I do think that 10 years ago, we would never have believed that the likes of Bolsonaro or Donald Trump or, or, or Boris Johnson would ever become, would ever be elected as leaders of particular large countries. You know, how has that happened? And I think you... We on the left internationally don't have an answer to that and we need to start thinking about it. How do we push out our messages? You know, is there something in the economic model of Facebook that means that, you know, outrage will always come to the top? And how do we how do we counter that? So, yes, yeah, so a lot of outrage about me kind of I have been ignoring, but I do think actually I need to find a way of countering those lies. And I've started to. I was just ignoring all the trolls and now sort of one one in 200 who says something stupid, I'll have a go at them back. Um, so I'm doing it a bit more now than I was. I mean, there is, you know, you, you'd be well within your rights just to put a piss off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that can be satisfying. I mean, it's probably not good advice for a politician. It's not but a good advice. I occasionally it's do it, and uh, I tell them to F off and then block them, and uh, I just feel quite nice. Well, quite often it's I'll um, I'll I'll retweet what they say with an answer. Um, yes, that's quite good. Um, <laughs> or or I'll and I think also the problem is is that you know if you put something out and there's a whole kind of gang of trolls that you know whatever you say they'll have they'll they'll mm. all kind of go you know then those who support you feel intimidated and can't don't say things that are yes, supportive. Yes, that's true. Yeah, but also don't take on the trolls. So um, so that's why it's important perhaps for me to show a bit of leadership and take them on occasionally rather than just mm. sort of glide serenely above it, which is what I've been trying to do. Um, so yeah, so I'm starting to take them on a bit more. 
um, but also blocking them. And I also want to know from Twitter, um, what is their definition of sexist abuse? Um, because because they'll they'll certainly they'll they'll stop an account that that puts out racist abuse or and if someone threatens to kill me in a particularly vivid way then they will block that account they'll stop that account but obviously i get a huge amount of sexist abuse and i don't know i don't know they say that they stop cases they stop uh, accounts that uh, put out sexist abuse but I have to say, I do think I've probably got some of the most choicest examples, and they don't, you know. Yeah, I mean, I would say what they class as abuse, full stop, yeah. is not what most people would class as abuse. No. I've reported no. so many accounts yeah. that have abused me and others that yeah. are definitely sexist, definitely racist, definitely all sorts of things, and or just nasty. And being nasty is a form of abuse. They'll just say it doesn't violate our rules. No, I find I I would love to know. Um, I did report one where they know, draw the I line. Mean, I reported one that was sort of saying that. I mean, I think I can't really remember now. So forgive me if I haven't got this exactly right. But I tried not to focus on it too much. But you know, since you're asking me about it, I think there was one that was basically saying that since I wasn't now a leadership candidate, I'd gone on the game and and had you know porn. Um, and a sort of, an, you know, a, a video of, of of somebody... Anyway, it was horrible. What, um, they photoshopped you into it? No, but they were claiming it was me. Jesus. Was, you know, and it was it was horrible. Anyway, I reported that. And it seems that doesn't violate their rules. And I just think, well... And I looked through the rest of the account of this particular person, who I hadn't, to be honest. I, I mean, I get lots of incoming, so I don't really pay a lot of attention to most of it. Um, but when I looked through his account... You know, there was all kinds of things that he'd said about it. It was amazing. I mean, just like, so grossly offensive. So, anyway, so I reported that and I thought, well, that's the end of that account. Not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. Doesn't, it doesn't break their rules. And I just think, well, I just wonder what, Incredible. what would. I just wonder what would. Yeah, I don't think social media companies are anywhere near. No, no. No. Vigilant enough, um, but I mean, I don't want to paint myself as a victim because I don't no. feel like I'm a victim, and that's not really who I am. But you know, but I am pretty outraged at uh, at the at the way in which they're being so pusillanimous um, about it all. I just think that uh, they've kind of finally got a, a handle on you know violent um, threats of violence, possibly, and and some racism, but sexism. They haven't got. They don't even know where to start. Um, I'm, talking, I'm trying to end on a light note, but, Sorry, um, no. <laughs> but well, no. So I asked you the questions, and I, I wonder in the context of which we're talking whether it's possible to end on a light note. But are you at this stage just as a citizen? You know, are you are you washing your hands regularly. You're checking on your elderly relatives. Are you are you worried about the world at the moment? Yeah, of course I'm worried. I'm worried. I have. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm very worried about what's going to happen next. I don't know how long this is going to go on for, and I worry about our health service, and what's. Um, yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. Um, so you've, can you find any any message of hope in amongst all this? As I say, I think that as a country, our people do want to do the right thing, and I think we will once. We've worked out what that is, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and that does mean that we need to have a bit more leadership than perhaps we've had until now, and a bit more clarity 
as to what is expected of people. And then I think that those who want to break those rules will find themselves coming up against confident people saying, you should not be doing this. Do not do this. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I think at the moment we're still not completely sure. Emily, it's always a pleasure. Thank Stay you. safe. Yeah, yeah. That's Thank you. <laughs>
it feels tawdry to, to even suggest this, but I, I know so many of you bought tickets for tour dates that were meant to be happening in this period. Um, so I've managed to get some of them rearranged and the wonderful team in the live department at Avalon are trying to get all of them rearranged, for certainly the March and April dates. At the moment, the May ones, the June and July ones, we hope can still go ahead. Uh, so um, the rearranged dates for some of the dates are as follows. Uh, Cambridge on the 21st of June, Corby on the 2nd of October, Brighton the 4th of October, that's at the Comedia, the Chorley Little Theatre on the 9th of October, uh, the uh, Leeds Hyde Park Book Club on the 18th of October, the Newcastle Stand on the 25th of October, the Camberley Theatre on the 3rd of November, the Annick Playhouse on the 13th of November, York Crescent on the 15th of November, the Cardiff Sherman Theatre on the 19th of November, the Glasgow Stand on the 29th of November, the Southend Dixon Studio on the 3rd of December, the amazing Sheffield Leadmill on the 6th of December. So I'll see you at some of those. Um... And yes, the website, check the government website, gov.uk, that's gov.uk slash coronavirus for all the latest. See you soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.